Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Paige Maxson, CEO of Australia Pacific LNG and non-executive director with the Queensland Symphony Orchestra. It's great to have you along today, and I'm sure you'll enjoy this conversation with Paige, who has been achieving great things in his career here in Australia and making a good contribution. He's somebody who believes that wherever he's based, he should make an investment in the local community, and we'll talk about that in his interview, and I think you'll be fascinated with what he has to say. Before I introduce Paige to you properly, let me first introduce myself for those people who are new to the Aratay podcast. My name is Richard Triggs and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive and we recruit CEOs, senior leaders and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if we can assist you with any recruitment needs, I'd welcome the opportunity to have a conversation with you about this. Let me now introduce to you Paige Maxson. Paige Maxson was born in Oklahoma in the United States of America. After graduating with a Bachelor of Science in Civil Engineering and a Master's of Business Administration, he worked in his own consultancy for a number of years before joining ConocoPhillips in 1988. In the time that he's worked with that organisation, he's worked throughout the world in Houston, Norway, Indonesia, West Texas and Libya. He has been based here in Australia as the CEO of Australia Pacific LNG since 2010. Paige is also on the board of the Queensland Symphony Orchestra and a director at the American Chamber of Commerce in Australia, as well as being chairman of the Business Advisory Council at the Ipswich North Precinct. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Paige Maxson. Well, Paige, welcome to the Aratay podcast. It's great to have you along here, uh, as we were just discussing, five weeks out from Christmas after a pretty big year. Certainly for me, I imagine it's been a big year for you too. Thanks, Richard. Yes, it has been a, a very busy year. So uh, in my current role as, as CEO of Australia Pacific LNG, this has really been a transition year um, as we've come off of um, a five-plus year building building phase and going into steady-state operations out there. Right. And so uh, you're uh, the CEO of a, um, an organisation which is essentially a joint venture between a number of parties. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, it's a little bit complex structure. Um, so Australia Pacific LNG is actually an incorporated joint venture okay. um, between three shareholders. Um, what that means is is all the assets and contracts and permits are actually owned by the Australia Pacific LNG Corporation. Okay. Uh, and so we're governed by a board made up of nominees from the three shareholders who are uh, Origin Energy, yeah. ConocoPhillips from the US, mm-hmm. and Sinopec from China. Right. And the fact that it's an incorporated JV, does that have a certain life to it, or is that a perpetual relationship? So that, it's a perpetual entity, just like uh, any other corporate entity. Uh-huh. Um, now, we're focused on development of natural gas in Queensland. Right. Um, 
at the moment, so that may not quite have the same uh, length of life as a more multifaceted organization. Right. Uh, but it's certainly looking at a 30 or 40 year horizon anyway, and no telling where it may go along the way in that. Okay. And there's obviously, obviously some advantages to having it as an incorporated structure versus a, a non-incorporated. Yes, there were. So it, 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 um, it all has to do with um, how to hold those assets and right. how, how to set up a, a fairly large business uh, here in the country. Uh, and how to finance it and, and capitalize it. As right. Well. And you came into that uh, role through ConocoPhillips versus the other two uh, organizations. Yeah, that's correct. Right. And so I imagine uh, in, in some respects having three bosses must uh, be uh, an interesting dynamic. Yes, joint venture worlds are very interesting. <laughs> and uh, this is my third or fourth one. I'd have to, right. have to think back. But uh, yes, uh-huh. it, it is different because um, when you sit in the middle, you do work for everybody. Yeah. Uh, and you're on nobody's team, per se. Right, so. okay. Uh-huh. So as uh, they say in recruitment land, um, you've got a good SCAR resume. Yes. <laughs> Excellent. All right, well, we'll, uh, we'll certainly come and talk to a lot more around that later in the conversation, but uh, uh, obviously we can hear a twang in your accent, so why don't you take us back to where you were born and uh, tell us about early life, uh, etc. Okay. Um, so I... Um, grew up in Oklahoma, yeah. in the central U.S., in uh, what would be a relatively small town over there, uh, or middle size, about 30,000 people. Okay. Um, we lived about uh, 9 or 10 miles outside of town on a, a small property mm-hmm. uh, on a fairly nice-sized river. Uh, but my father worked um, in town, actually, right. actually for Conoco, which is one of uh, the predecessors okay. of Conoco Phillips. Yeah. Uh, as a research engineer, right. um, I'm one of five kids, and uh, mother stayed home. And, and uh, you know, growing up in the '60s, uh, things were relatively tight. As you probably, I think, for most people, demographics have changed. There, there weren't that many affluent upper middle class okay. back then. Yeah, and, um, which meant that we raised a lot of our own food and right. did a lot of things like that. Okay. So, so what number out of five were you? So I'm number four. Number four. Yeah. And uh, uh, older brothers or sisters? or Yeah, there's, I have two brothers and two sisters. Um, and so oldest was a girl and youngest a girl. Right, okay. And uh, as the uh, saying goes, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, certainly in relation to you working for the firm that uh, your father worked for. What about your other brothers and sisters? Well, quite, quite varied. Um, we're the only ones that uh, or my wife and I took off overseas. Right. Uh, the others have all stayed closer to home, uh, mm-hmm. Kansas, Oklahoma, and okay. Texas. Okay. Uh, following a variety of careers. So. Right. Okay. Mm-hmm. And um, so on the property, uh, it wasn't you know a major scale farm, but you did a lot of your own you know um, food for home, etc. Yeah. But so we would have um, raised in one way or another. Um, the majority of, of what you would think of as fresh food. So right. We, we had a milk cow. We milked. Okay. We, we would have um, slaughtered beef and we had chickens and eggs and, and fairly large vegetable gardens. Right. And then we had a, a river uh, nearby, so we had quite, quite a lot of fish out of there. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Fantastic. So uh, you had lots of chores when you were young then? Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and being number four, I imagine that uh, you got lumped with a lot of the ones the others didn't want to do. Yeah, no, not so bad because, uh, you know, as life progresses, I, mm-hmm. you know, uh, my older brothers would have had to milk the cow all, all the way till they left home. Right. I only had to do it a few years before Dad decided it was cheaper to get the milk at the supermarket. Yeah, right, so, okay. Yeah. And so you did uh, your... Uh, 
schooling locally? So I have a, um, a Bachelor of Science from Oklahoma State University, which yeah. is not too far away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I have a Master's of Business from the University of Texas. Down right. In Austin, so. Okay. And so uh, at what sort of age were you when you started to think, I'd like to go and follow in my father's footsteps? <laughs> well, actually, a fair bit later, um, when I finished my... Um, engineering degree Conoco recruited at that campus uh-huh. and they um, said they'd like to talk with me and, and I actually told them that they were about the last company that I would ever want to work for right. so, uh, and it was quite some years later actually when I was um, 28 so 6-7 years later yeah. that I phoned them up and said uh, I don't know if you might still want to talk to me or not right. and remember me and they said well yeah actually we do Right. Uh, we're interested in having a chat. So. Okay. And was the lack of desire to work for them purely because dad's there, so I don't want to be there, or were there other factors? Oh, I, look, I grew up in, a, again, a fairly small town. They were the major employer, so right. having watched all that, uh, not just my father's experience, but other experience. Okay. Um, it was a, a technical part of the organization, mm-hmm. um, and, and one thing I would say is uh, technical folks don't always make the best managers right. and leaders. and, yeah. and um and so I didn't necessarily like what I saw about the way they okay. were. Right. And at, at that point in life, um, I really thought I wanted to pursue an entrepreneurial right. career. Okay, sure. So just stepping back a little bit. So finished high school, went to university, did your edu- engineering degree, and then pretty much immediately went into your MBA. Yes. Right. Where, you know, and it, uh, there's lots of different schools of thought around MBAs and, you know, their relevance and practicality and so on. What, what was it about, um, uh, what was happening for you to make you think, I want to get that done straight away? Well, I had worked my way through college, Richard. Okay. I actually, I actually uh, paid 100% of my expenses that I couldn't get um, from scholarships or anything mm-hmm. else. And um, so I felt like um, if I stopped... And started getting a regular income and a little bit more affluent that I right. might not go back. So, yeah, okay. so I really thought I should continue. Right. And what sort of work were you doing when you were doing your undergraduate degree? Well, I, I did a, a variety of things, but I actually um, I'd started a business uh, while I was still in high school uh-huh. uh, related to agricultural stuff without right. going in detail, and was able to make ten, twelve thousand uh, dollars for kind of growing season in right. the summer up there. Okay. Uh, and that was enough to finance me through the first two years yeah. uh, of university, but uh, pretty long, hot work. So right. uh, as I got about halfway through the engineering school with enough skills to get hired, mm-hmm. I got hired into a lab technician in an engineering company mm-hmm. uh, at a reasonable wage. And so for then, for the next uh, two years, mm-hmm. worked uh, for this company, a small engineering company. Right. And, uh, and at the same time, you've got this uh, entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, you know, how did you satisfy that? Uh, or did you decide at some point, actually, I want to follow a more corporate career progression? Well, so I did uh, eventually decide that. Um, had had done a couple of other things as I went through, uh, on through graduate school and mm-hmm. so on. Um, and then coming out of that, I actually formed a business with um, one of my former professors at the University of Texas. Okay. Um, and we did that for about three years um, in a consulting arm. Right. And... Did reasonably well, but one of the things your listeners will be familiar with here in America, um, healthcare is an issue. There, yes. there's, so we don't have public health care. Mm-hmm. Um, and, of course, when you have your own small consulting firm, there's no such thing as paid vacation, etc. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I know all about that, yeah. too. <laughs> and uh, 
you know, when I was uh, 26, 27, uh, we had our first child, okay. uh, only child, actually, yeah. son. I had built a house, mortgage, savings and loan crisis happened, and working quite hard, but I started thinking, hmm, not sure where this is going to go. Right. And, uh, and one of the things that changed over that time, um, honestly, was our consulting company worked with some fairly successful uh, mid-range companies, but also with quite a number of startups. And, and so I saw the ones that were successful and the ones that worked really hard and weren't and, and then the, the failures. Right. And I started to understand the probabilities okay. around it and um, thought, well, all these things coupled together, the corporate world might not be so bad, probably not quite the same reward scenario, whether mm-hmm. financially or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, but a much safer bet, right? Uh, and so that made me reconsider thinking back. And and you know it wasn't a, it was really a turning point when I started thinking, if my son got really ill, mm. and I couldn't afford for the treatment mm-hmm. because I didn't have the health coverage, mm-hmm. and so that that was a significant driver in it mm. amongst everything. Mm. Okay, um, and you, just as a bit of an aside to the conversation, uh, you have an entrepreneurial orientation. But you've gone into an organization, followed a corporate career path, and there's this concept of the intrapreneur, which is an entrepreneur mm-hmm. working within a corporate framework. Do you think that your career has been able to satisfy that entrepreneurial element that you have? Um, large parts of it, I would say. So one of the things I mentioned earlier, I didn't think I'd want to work for Conoco because yeah. the side of it I saw in the research arm. I have to say the, it's been a great career. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I learned um, coming in there is... You've, you've got to follow the rules, but you can actually have about as much authority as you're willing to own the risk of and mm-hmm. own the accountability for. And the, and the company will do that. They they will they just be, they notice who is willing to step out and do that. Yeah. And again, as long as you're following the process and the mm-hmm. rules, um, there's room to do that. Mm-hmm. So I think from that side, uh, yeah, it didn't end up feeling bureaucratic or constrained mm-hmm. uh, in any regard. Um, but you do have a lot more help. Uh, you know, in the entrepreneurial world, of course, you have bankers and investors and regulators, and so yeah. you never escape the help. No, that's um, right. But it's probably the higher degree of consultation in mm-hmm. the, the big corporate world sometimes mm-hmm. uh, is, is maybe a bit worrying. Mm. And you've been with the firm for almost 30 years. Yeah. Almost, yeah. So uh, the uh, culture you refer to of supporting people who, you know, to use an Australian expression, are prepared to have a go, um, do you think that that's something that's fairly unique to ConocoPhillips, or is that your experience more broadly? Well, I, I would say it's probably true more places. I okay. mean, one of the things I've come to believe over the years is that uh, there's no rose gardens and, and there's no uh, um, sewage ponds. You know, right. all, of, all the companies are not that dissimilar. Right. And, and so, uh, you know, a lot of folks think of changing companies to make things better. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I would say that, you know, you change companies for opportunities or, yeah. or for other reasons. But mm-hmm. if you think it's going to be a whole lot different or better, you're probably... Uh, bit misled on that Mm -hmm. and so uh you go to conoco phillips you say look i'm you know uh will you have me uh they obviously said yes so how did your career unfold from there so uh one thing i would say is you know it is different most in the big companies and like conoco phillips and certainly back then most people joined straight out of university went Uh sort of through their development programs and and that was who became the leadership Mm -hmm. a little bit less common today because there's been so many mergers and different changes since then um and and cycles in the industry but 
I would say that the, the experience I had of having been out on our own and, and working in different companies actually served me very well okay. going in there. Um, in what respect? Well, um, let me put it this way. is You could be working 80% as hard as you did on your own, mm-hmm. and inside there it looks like you're just working, <laughs> working all the time. So there, right. it is a little bit lower bar for the most yeah, part okay. on average. But I don't want that to sound too harsh because there's a lot of people work very hard sure. um, in there and going around. But... You know, that part of it, the other part of it, I, I had been um, presenting analysis to company owners and boards and bankers for mm-hmm. a few years there before I came in. And so I'd had a lot of practice at communication mm-hmm. and synthesis mm-hmm. and standing up in front of folks and mm-hmm. uh, probably more than I would have gotten internally at that stage mm-hmm. as well. And how do you think culturally within the business, you're coming into the organization, as you say, in your late 20s and... Uh, you know, there are people who at that age would have been in the organization for a number of years. Did you feel a little bit like a fish out of water or or you integrated quite well? Well, um, it was actually relatively easy. I was lucky. I came into a really great group and part of the company. Uh-huh. Um, it was in Houston, Texas in the headquarters, but it was part of the international division, okay. which is where they were. I spent almost all my career. Um, I'd actually spent two full days interviewing and one was a different division and that other divisions they didn't go that well they um and it was basically folks my own age or slightly older asked me who did i think i was that i could just walk in there after they'd been through all those problems whereas the other group that i did join um they were excited about their jobs and they spent their the day telling me what a wonderful place it'd be and how much i'd like it if i came there right and uh and it was all from day one very welcoming. Fantastic. And, yeah. and so uh, what was the role that you originally stepped into? So I went in as a, a, a what they called an economist, but basically an investment a- analyst. So, okay. so as we were looking at investments around the world, um, I would take all the numbers and crunch sort of the economic analysis of it right. and then present that along with uh, whoever the business leader was for that mm-hmm. piece of it. Um, up, up the line to see about a, approval for Okay. And were they uh, acquisitions or were they greenfield developments? So they were mostly greenfield, but there were a few acquisitions okay. as well. But most of the time we're looking at uh, doing new developments um, you know, in different parts of the world. Right. And for those people who run for me with Phillips as a business, talk about the kind of developments that they were doing. Well, so um, at that time, uh, they were everything from refining and, and retail to... Um, uh, upstream oil and gas, and most of what I was doing was upstream stuff, uh, right. not entirely exclusively. Um, and, and generally, since it was internationally, most of it was either offshore or in the Arctic, uh, mm-hmm. etc. Um, you know, that's one of the things the industry has changed dramatically in the last ten years. For most of my career, we were having to push the frontiers to find the remaining oil and gas. Okay, um, but. You know, now we've we've had to shift to where there's places like here in Queensland and, yeah. and the central U.S. have have had a rejuvenation of of the resources, and so it's a focus has mm-hmm. changed a bit. New technologies allowing previously uneconomic uh, uh, oil and gas fields to now be uh, utilized. Well, it's new technology, and a lot of times just new application of older technology. Okay, and, right. and, and in the case of Queensland, just uh, the eventual discovery of the scope mm-hmm. of the resource that was here. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, for those people who are unfamiliar with the industry, just explain what you mean upstream versus downstream. Yes, I'm sorry. So upstream is is finding oil and gas, getting it out of ground, mm-hmm. uh, cleaning it up, and, and uh, putting it into the marketplace. Right. Whereas 
uh, downstream is taking that oil and gas, processing it into whatever products, uh, diesel, mm-hmm. gasoline, what have you, and, and selling it out into the consuming right. place. So. Right. Fantastic. So uh, you're in Houston. Your role is to analyze these projects and uh, validate whether they are good investments or not. Mm, okay. Yes. And then where did your career go to from there? Well, um, very quickly overseas, which uh, was a bit of a surprise because when I interviewed with them, even though they were international department, uh, they said, look, most folks 10, 15 years before you go out. Um, mm-hmm. It was um, just over 12 well, actually, six months I was sent away for a month to Indonesia. Okay. Uh, and then just over 12 months, basically, went to Norway uh, for three months and then from there to Indonesia for four and a half years. Right. And, so, uh, and your family there. traveled with you? Yes. Right, okay. So yes. uh, your young son was getting quite a, a world education. Yes. He, Fantastic. He, he grew up uh, in multiple locations around the world, including we did have five years back in the U.S. sort of, uh, you know, from the time he was eight years old. Mm-hmm. Um, before we went back out. Um, it was interesting to watch because for him, it was a long time for him to distinguish country boundaries, political boundaries. Okay. To him, there were just places in the world that you went. Right. And uh, actually, even in middle school, when, when other kids in the geography class readily got states and countries, he was struggling with the concept. And right. Obviously, he got it eventually. But Yeah. Yeah, yeah I mentioned uh, it must be a really interesting experience. I traveled a lot when I was a child uh, internationally and... Uh, you know, you hear about uh, children of people in the armed forces and so on, they, who have a very different worldview of somebody who literally, you know, is born and lives and grows up and stays yeah. in the same place for their whole life. Yeah. And I can't remember the statistic, but uh, uh, there's a massive percentage of the American population that don't even hold a, a passport. That's right, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I can't think of what that is. And so um, uh, when you were being, uh, when you were going to these international postings, I imagine the role substantively changed. You're no longer doing, you know, the analysis. It's more of an, in an operational type role. Well, so one of the good things about a, a career in a big company, I should probably put that in now, is uh, you, if you have the desire, there's a huge variety of roles and you can develop through a progression and they're good at that. Mm-hmm. They're good at developing that base of experience for the next thing. Um, and you don't have to be stuck in the same job for 5, 10, 20 years mm-hmm. uh, if you don't want to be. And so going out, with my first roles out, um, by the time I went over to Indonesia, so say 18 months after I joined, mm-hmm. I was leading a small group over there that did do investment appraisals still, uh, but it started to have other things layered in. So I started to get into um, uh, strategy, mm-hmm. commercial negotiations, uh, budgets, planning, forecasting. So it, it expanded mm-hmm. out of that side of things. Uh, and a small amount of operational scheduling our tanker movements of, of ships and things. Um, and then, you know, from there, actually came back to the States, as I mentioned, for five years, where started to move across, went into a commercial role, uh, uh, negotiating contracts for long-term gas supply mm-hmm. in Texas uh, to an operational role, where mm-hmm. actually they sent me into some plants in Oklahoma. Again, it's the only time I went back to Oklahoma okay. all those years for a year and a half. Uh, to get operating experience and mm-hmm. understand how the field works um, and then was accountable for actually the other time I developed coal seam gas but in, in Virginia right. uh, we had an operation that, that produced gas ahead of a longwall coal mine in mm-hmm. the area and so I went and was responsible for first. that was the first time I was really responsible for the whole as they call the asset so every aspect mm-hmm. of the business mm-hmm. 
Um, and then from there, it was really just a series of different but bigger operations. Right. So. And uh, you mentioned earlier that you know one of the uh, talents you developed as a your own business owner was uh, working harder uh, and also being able to communicate well. But what do you think it was that enabled you to have uh, this sort of career escalation within the business? What traits did you bring or what, what were the skills that you started to manifest that enabled you to get the recognition and the opportunities? Yeah, that, you know, it's a good question. I, I often wondered early on why I got the opportunities. Right. Um, but as, as you go up, and I think a lot of your listeners would equate with this, um, and looking at your, as you're collecting talent to do things, um, you notice folks that that sort of stand out and yeah. that you want to have. And, and I would say probably two characteristics distinguish them. Uh, and, of course, we're, we're a huge variety of people, so mm-hmm. um, different ways to come about it. Uh, but it's usually the people who um, are thinking broadly about the business, not just their job, but even early on are, are wondering and thinking about the rest of the picture mm-hmm. and how it fits together. Uh, and those that are willing to step up and have a go, as you say. Mm-hmm. You, you know, there are those you ask and they say yes, and there's those you sort of have to push. And then there are those who actually take it farther than you've asked them and, and sort of voluntarily offer you really good stuff. And then mm-hmm. those are the ones you find and pull out. And do you think that uh, the self-awareness to know to do those things was something that was innate to you? Or did you have some mentors or were there pivotal moments where you went, oh, I, okay, if I start to act and behave in this way, it's going to open up a lot more opportunity to me. So, uh, you know, I was thinking back in preparation for this. Uh, I had a whole series of, I, I guess what you'd term mentors, um, mm-hmm. almost none of them in a formal acknowledged relationship, but, yeah. you know, all the way back even into my teens, uh, people who took an interest and just talked some more. And, mm-hmm. and so my partner on the business I had... Uh, before I joined Conoco, which was in Austin, Texas, by the way, mm-hmm. um, was the ex-chairman of the finance department and was in his 70s, and I was okay. in my early 20s. Yeah. And he taught me a lot, mm-hmm. uh, just about how to, um, how to work with other businessmen, how to show up, how to approach, you know, uh, the way we thought about things, mm-hmm. um, sort of ethics, uh, you know, deep south. You know, he was from World War II era, so, he, you know, your word was your bond, you don't mess with that. Uh, taking that in as I went through the company I was fortunate to work with several good leaders mm-hmm. um, and one of the things I found and I guess one thing I would encourage people if they're wondering is uh, you don't have to ask somebody to be a mentor but if you're inquisitive and curious and show up I, I never had one that ever acted impatient they all yeah. immediately were happy to talk and, mm-hmm. and discuss and what have you mm-hmm. I think that's very true and uh, I say this regularly uh, <laughs> people love to help people and so just by asking, can you help me, um, as you say, there's many people who have got tremendous knowledge and experience that are looking for the opportunity to share that. Uh, and, you know, that's one of the reasons why I actually started this podcast. But, uh, uh, and so um, you were just uh, identifying and tapping the wisdom of those who'd walked yeah. the path before you to, to support you in your own career. Yeah. I was going to say, I had a couple more guys that were... Um Key, played key roles, and mm-hmm. one of them was fairly early on in that role in Indonesia, which okay. again, so at, at that time I would have been about 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the great things about being an analyst is you you have to take inputs from every piece of the business and everything mm-hmm. that's involved, so you get a more comprehensive view. Um, I started sort of um, 
on different opportunities or issues thinking, well, what if I had the um, country manager's job? Okay. What would I be worried about here? What would I be thinking about? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I'd go along and ask the man who was, I'd say, do you, do you have 15 minutes? Can I have a chat? And, uh, and I'd say, look, I've been thinking about this and that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way I look at it, here's what I consider the relevant things and that you would be thinking about. And, mm-hmm. and this is kind of the conclusion I come to. So how does that sound? And, and he would actually, he actually loved to talk about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes he'd say, well, there's another piece of information you don't know. Let me right. tell you about something else over there and mm-hmm. see if that would change how you feel, right. et cetera. But it was a really great opportunity to start thinking about if I did get a chance mm. to, to uh, lead a business, mm-hmm. um, what all should you think about mm-hmm. and what kind of things and, and uh, repercussions are there and, mm-hmm. and all that. So that was, he, he was, the fact he was willing to take that time yeah. was very important early on. Um, and then later, when I f- was leading my first really big business, so um, in the North Sea in Aberdeen, Scotland, um, sort of 1,200 people kind of scope, um, had a really good mentor, uh, a gentleman there who was towards the end of his career, ran, mm-hmm. that was a very large business overall, North Sea business, he ran that. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was the first one that told me, when you get to a certain point, it's not a- about being busy. Mm-hmm. He, he goes, uh, it's about uh, creating the space so that you're thinking about where the business needs to go, what may be sneaking up on you, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If you're busy going to meetings and engrossed mm-hmm. to stuff, et cetera, um, you probably aren't going to step back and take the time to think mm-hmm. about that. And, and I found that to be really valuable advice. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so how did you consciously apply that in terms of your own workload? Because, I mean... The, it's a cliche, work on the business, not in the business. And yet we're so busy, you know, fighting crocodiles yeah. every day. How did, you, um, how did you make sure that you heeded and applied that? Well, you know, fortunately, I had him for uh, several years as, as my manager. Mm-hmm. And he created that space. So I didn't have to worry about my manager might be thinking if right. I wasn't busy. Yeah. Um, it's actually a difficult transition because most of us, as we were talking about how hard you work, so most of us start out that career working really hard Mm -hmm. and putting in a lot of hours and turning out a lot of product and what have you. And when you sort of step back from that, you feel really guilty. Yeah, absolutely. You feel like you should be doing something. Um, And so making an effort not to do that. And then I would say there were two things that I started to develop there. Um, One of them is, is do delegate. So Mm -hmm. don't, don't ask your next level team to, meet regularly and explain everything they're doing, mm-hmm. but set a direction with them, agree where you're going, and then give them the space and, and say, mm-hmm. and, and kind of work out the relationship where if you're getting in trouble, don't wait too long. Please, let's have a chat yeah. about where we might go. Um, but likewise, if things are going well, just come back when it's at a decision point mm-hmm. or what have you mm-hmm. uh, in that regard. And then just don't go to a bunch of meetings. In the corporate world, you get invited to everything, and if you want to, you could just be solid meetings and, and start having, again, that sort of courage to say, I don't need to be it that way. Yeah, yeah. I think uh, Macquarie Bank used to say, freedom within boundaries, which yeah. is really what you're talking about. Um, going back to, uh, you started talking to the country manager in Indonesia, and you're thinking in your own mind, what if I was the country manager? Did you start to think consciously about this is where I want my career to go and, and you had a you know a strategy to get there or was it more that your career evolved by happenstance? So it just evolved. Right. Now, so I have a couple of theories on that. Um, one of the things 
uh, younger folks today, a lot of the generations that, that come see me want to want to know the career map that they know they'll get to be a CEO. Yeah. Um, I don't think it exists. Mm-hmm. Um, it'd be nice, but sure. I don't, don't think it exists. Um, but I think, you know, folks that do lead, you're compelled to lead. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've often thought about that actually the happiest people in our organization are the senior professionals that have made financially very good incomes, but go home at night without having to worry about all this. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you're drawn, if, if you're one of the leaders, you're sort of drawn to want to be involved in the decision making mm-hmm. and, and it bothers you if you're left out. Mm-hmm. So, so I think that's a trait that's there. Um, I never asked generally for the next role and I generally think you don't have to. Mm-hmm. I think if you're doing a good job and you've folks know that you do want to increase. So what I used to say is, well, you guys tell me what's best to uh, prepare me for the next increase in scope or scale or whatever. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they'd just say, fine. And so they would go find that opportunity mm-hmm. uh, for you. And, whereas uh, I think you limit yourself because you, we probably, as we're coming up, don't have a broad enough view of what opportunities might be there. So if you say, I'd like to do that next, there's no telling what you've taken off the table. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that uh, that's a very good point. Um, by leaving yourself open uh, and just doing your job well, uh, it creates multiple opportunities, which if you became too specific, you, you'd miss out on. That's the point you're making. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah, I think uh, I spoke recently, Australian Institute of Management had a young members panel discussion about personal brand. And these younger members, you know, typically... 30 and younger were saying, you know, what do I need to do to increase my personal brand? Do I need a blog? Do I need a Twitter? Do I need this? Do I need that? And I think reality is your personal brand comes from just doing your job extremely well. Exactly. Um, oh, it's interesting. And so, uh, and over the course of your career, you worked in some, um, you know, pretty challenging environments as well, didn't you? Yes, worked in a variety of countries. Um, now, I should maybe circle back when, when I was interviewing on that day that was going very well in the international right. division. They said, well, what do you think about living and working internationally? And, and like most Americans, as you said, I had never been out of the country, other mm-hmm. than maybe to Canada. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't have a passport. Yeah. And I said, well, I don't know. Um, but I'm willing to, to have a go. And, and that's when they said, well, don't worry, it takes a long time before it happens. Right. Uh, <laughs> didn't take very long. But, you know, in hindsight, that turned out to be uh, an amazing break because mm-hmm. the world is uh, a really fascinating place. It's, it's incredibly varied. And yet, people are people everywhere. And, mm-hmm. and I've lived uh, in a variety of, of places. The only of the settled continents I haven't lived and worked on is South America. Right. I got that one, but uh, all the others. Um, and lived in three Muslim countries, since mm-hmm. that's a topical thing. And uh, the people there were just like anywhere else. Um, mm-hmm. So there are cultural differences. So mm-hmm. countries have cultures, but people and families what they do if they want to get to know you is invite you to their house for dinner mm-hmm. you know you get to know them and their kids and develop a relationship and it doesn't really matter all the other stuff mm-hmm. that. but mm-hmm. but I think that experience has made uh, it a lot more fun and a lot less boring so you still have the job and the changing backdrop mm-hmm. but the fact that you're applying your skills in a, in a completely different setting and having to learn how you work with that group of people lead that group of a workforce mm-hmm. or engage with the government um has made it very fun. Mm, great. And so what were some of the, you know, the key milestone moments that took you 
you know, to the role of actually now being a CEO. I mean, you've spoken about the earlier part of your career with ConocoPhillips, but when you know, did you start to get the opportunities which were taking you down that pathway? Well, so probably, um, you know, it's hard to say because there was never sort of that breakthrough, but um, I would say mostly early because mm-hmm. once you're on a progression and if you keep performing well at the different levels and challenges, you continue to progress. Mm-hmm. Um, but early on, um, I had that three months in Norway. Mm-hmm. It was on a very large project. Uh, and I spoke out uh, doing it um, in sort of in support of something that was out of the norm. Um, and ultimately they decided to do that and it worked so mm-hmm. you know that's the good news um, likewise in Indonesia I was there almost five years then right after that but in a role with the strategy and, and the economics uh, analysis in a role to uh, exhibit some leadership at times um, and having courage mm-hmm. uh, in in sort of the face of maybe conventional uh, wisdom in the company saying no we shouldn't do that right so um, I think those were noticed right and, and from that point uh, sort of started it on on a route mm-hmm. and um, it's interesting you talk about courage uh, you know what what's an example of a time where you had to show courage to get an outcome that perhaps uh, there was resistance to oh uh, probably the greater courage ones I don't want to talk about but <laughs> so, <laughs> Fair um, but so Sort of, you know, five years in, I come back from Indonesia into the U.S. and they mm-hmm. put me in this job uh, negotiating contracts for um, long-term gas supply from really from small private producers mm-hmm. uh, in West Texas. And we, we had that part of the business. We were one of the leading companies in the country, actually number two. And we'd been buying gas the same way since the 1950s. Okay. And so one of the differences of coming from outside, I think, is you have a different perspective. And mm-hmm. And as I came in and, and started trying to do this, but looking at it, it, it just seemed horribly convoluted and inefficient. And so I started speaking to my boss who was in Houston. I was in Midland, Texas, but uh, saying, just doesn't seem like the best way to do this. And mm-hmm. of course he said, well, look, we've been doing it a long way and we're very successful and keep that. Well, um, over the, a few months, I started thinking about a better way to do it and, uh, came up with that way and the contract kind of drafted a contract and uh, went back to Houston and said I think this would be better and and, uh, and so then we had that a uh, couple of months of dialogue around everybody around uh, the risks of change and yeah. all of that and in the end they gave me a chance said alright you can go do a couple of these and we'll see how they go mm-hmm. and, and so we did um, and then a couple of years later, they changed it to the standard across right. the company. But so that, you know, I think being willing to stand there when everybody else is going, no, 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 that's not a good idea. Fantastic. Yeah. Let's fast forward to you uh, arriving in Australia in 2010. Uh, that was when you took on your current role, correct? Mm-hmm. So, you know, when you stepped into that role, what was the mandate? Well, no, well, I don't know, I'd say... Go make this work. So uh, you know, origin. Go and make this work. Yeah. Well, as simple as <laughs> fair that. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, origin and Conical Phillips had uh, taken a significant investment decision mm-hmm. to go into this. We hadn't actually taken final investment decision yet, but but uh, Conoco had invested several billion dollars to get towards uh, uh, farming into half interest in APLNG, mm-hmm. and um, you know we needed to go 
find buyers, get it through the regulatory process, um, you know, get accepted in the community, the whole range. And mm-hmm. uh, so, look, I, I obviously don't do this at all alone. So I've got the way we're set up. Conoco operates and runs the downstream, so yeah. on Curtis Island, uh, and Origin Energy operates and runs the upstream. Mm-hmm. And my role is is again more one of uh, bringing it together. Um, mm-hmm. We're the conduit back and forth to the shareholders uh, for. Uh, budget approvals, et cetera, mm-hmm. decisions, uh, and engagement around and across. So. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the six years that you've had in the role, um, if you had to hang your hat on a particular key achievement and say, this is something that I'm really proud of, that uh, you know we were able to achieve here, what would you say? Oh, I'm proud of a lot. Um, you know, We would all say this, but I, I do think relatively acknowledged uh, of the three big projects that went forward, I think we've um, done it with the least fuss and fanfare and, mm-hmm. and uh, probably the best overall financial result in terms mm-hmm. of cost and so on. Uh, so I'm proud of that. And, but that took um, thousands of people mm-hmm. and, and a lot of, of leadership beyond myself. Uh, so that isn't all of it. But I, I think I would point, I guess, to uh, personal survival. Right. Because, um, each of the other two are on CEO number three okay. since uh, 2010, and, and I'm still here. So, and, right. we, and we always said at the beginning, we used to laugh, that you know you've done okay if you're still here. So. Uh, <laughs> go and make it work, and if you're still there in six years, you've done a good job. Yeah, yeah right. Well, that's a, that's a pretty direct and uh, simple uh, mandate for success. And mm-hmm. so you know, why is it, without sort of getting into the story of the other organizations, why is it that you're a survivor? Well, because we did, it did work fairly well. Right. So it's less about, I would say, anything I did personally other than perhaps helping uh, a few times to mm-hmm. um, make sure we went down that, that uh, right path. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when things aren't going well in any business, the first thing that happens is they change the leader. So, yeah. so uh, that, that's the difference. Mm. Which sometimes is the right choice yeah. and other times it's not. I agree. Uh, I, I could point to at least once in the other company, one of the other companies where the board changed the leadership, and I think it was absolutely the wrong answer. Mm-hmm. I think it cost them six months, but, mm-hmm. you know. But that's that's still also the way life works. Yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. And you know, you're working in an industry where you know, it creates a lot of uh, confusion and anxiety within the community. You know what's happening here, and I imagine you've seen that multiple times in your career going into you know, different um, countries and different cultures and so on, and particularly here in Queensland, you know, this uh, idea of uh, what's happened with oil and gas has had some detractors. You know, I imagine a big part of your job is community engagement and making sure that you are able to satisfy their concerns, etc. How, how do you deal with all of that? So the world changed for our industry almost simultaneous with when I took up this role in 2010. Mm-hmm. There, there was a shift in the way things are done. So throughout all my career, as we've gone anywhere, um, engagement with what I'll call the affected community, wherever we're actually operating, has been absolutely key. Mm-hmm. And so I've done a lot of that. I've, I've actually uh, sat on the ground out in the middle of Sahara at a 50 degrees Celsius mm-hmm. afternoon and had dinner with uh, the town council. And, and, you know, you go and you do these, you do that. And, and, you know, I grew up in Oklahoma, it's oil and gas country, and it's part of the community, and people have always done that. You know, mm-hmm. To think that you could go out somewhere and just plop in the middle of folks and not 
actually become part of that community and, and engage them in what you do uh, is a, would be a bit misguided, to say the least. Um, that part's still there. Mm-hmm. Uh, that part here um, was uh, a little bit traumatic because folks had been scared early on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it worked like anywhere else. Mm-hmm. It, you know, If we spend time and get to know folks and they get to know us and we openly share the information with them, mm-hmm. um, they develop that trust and comfort. And, and so um, it hasn't happened universally, but it has happened by and large, and, and we have a very good relationship with our communities that we're in. Mm-hmm. What shifted in, in 2010 was a global uh, push against fossil, fossil fuels. Right. Um, that, you know, they have their intentions, which, of course, are by and large good, mm-hmm. concerned about climate change, um, but they've chosen to try to to uh, slow the growth or stop the growth of fossil fuels by scaring people, mm-hmm. um, and that it's an easier game. Mm-hmm. The, you know, you can make allegations, you know, like here, uh, you know, they can say you're ruining the artesian basin and throw that all around, and people are, would be absolutely concerned. The answer that shows that we're not is a very long and boring and detailed <laughs> scientific set of studies that have been done by various parties. Yeah. That's not so easy. So mm-hmm. so that part of the of the dialogue has been mm-hmm. really different, mm-hmm. uh, I have to say. And, and we still struggle to figure out how to bring the comfort to the wider community mm-hmm. that we bring to the local community. Because if you're affected, you're willing to sit down. In fact, you want to sit down and you're willing to spend however long it takes to understand it mm. and be satisfied. Whereas the wider community, it is about how do you do that mm-hmm. quickly. And, and it's brought a whole different side into things. Uh, you know, it used to be our industry almost never spoke publicly. Mm-hmm. You know, as leaders, we didn't go out and get on the stage because mm-hmm. we, we were better off just to uh, do our job quietly and Mm -hmm. now you have to well I suppose it's uh, a little different to say the tobacco industry you know who are um, it'd be fair to say that there's no positive reason to smoke cigarettes you know uh, whereas in your industry there's a lot of positives that come out of it so it's being able to temper uh, you know what are real concerns uh, with you know some broader reality around the economic and uh, you know life benefits of uh, tapping into these uh, fossil fuels. Well, absolutely. I mean, if I could uh, make my plea for two minutes, it's not sure. what we came in for. But, uh, you know, there, there's a conscious move to try to vilify whether it's coal, oil, or gas, fossil mm-hmm. fuels. Um, I think that's misguided, and it takes away from where we need to go. And um, climate change uh, is real. And even if we didn't have climate change, air pollution around the world is extremely real. Mm-hmm. We need to to uh, do away with that, if you will. Mm-hmm. Um, but the fights that, that try to deal with it in isolation by country, try to halt programs and ignore the fact that two and a half billion people in the world still cook with biomass, with mm-hmm. animal dung or wood they gather, what have you, that 18,000 people a day die prematurely uh, because of air pollution, are ignoring the fact that you, you can't just stop. Mm-hmm. And what we really need is a joined up conversation, serious conversation around how does how does the world work together, because we have one atmosphere, to keep economies going, to lift these people out of energy poverty, get them modern electricity, mm-hmm. and transition to new sources of generation um, that are cleaner, 
mm-hmm. uh, and make it all work. And mm-hmm. that gets lost in the fear-mongering. Mm. And so, in fact, it's sort of defeating the purpose, if you mm. will. And taking a realistic viewpoint rather than being too pessimistic or too optimistic, do you think that you'll see that degree of change within your lifetime? Um, well, I don't know how long I've left, but um, <laughs> yeah, I, I do think we'll see tremendous change. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm optimistic that eventually calmer heads will prevail. There, mm-hmm. There's a group in Paris called the International Energy Agency. They write some very good reports, and, and their whole focus is on we've got to reverse global warming, but we've got to keep world economies going and we've got to uh, lift other people out of energy poverty. Mm-hmm. So the solutions need to be around that, mm-hmm. and they put some plausible scenarios. Um, I hope at some point it'll become evidence that the other stuff is actually hindering it, and everybody will work together. Right. Uh, you know, a good example of that is Australia, by all means, have the means to go heavily renewable. Yep. You know, both climate, environment, population density, everything mm-hmm. lead to that. Um, but they're cold and their natural gas are among the cleanest fossil fuels in the world, they absolutely should be in supplied in, into these parts of the world, China, India, Pakistan, Burma, where you've got mm-hmm. two and a half billion people without electricity, because mm-hmm. they're going to get electricity. And no matter what Australia does, and if all the projects here are blocked, mm-hmm. they're going to get it, and they're going to do it with something worse. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and so the, the dialogue needs to be at that level of thinking sure. instead of just, what do we do here in yeah. Australia? yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a very interesting perspective, and uh, I hope that uh, people who are listening to the podcast take the time to investigate a little further and, and form their own opinions. About exactly. That. And, I, and I think that you, the point that you made earlier about just plopping into a community, uh, I mean, in terms of your own professional life, you've done that too. You've come into Australia and you're uh, on the board of Queensland Symphony Orchestra and director of the American Chamber of Commerce and uh, also on an advisory council at Ipswich. So talk a little bit about those facets of what you do. So one of the things about spending uh, my life, as it turns out, as a, um, an itinerant person right. around the world. Uh, along the way, uh, relatively soon, I would say, switched mindset from the fact that I'm an expatriate, I'm in a country for a period of time, and then I'll, I'll someday go home, Yeah. Uh, to home is wherever we are at the moment. Right. And so, you know, Brisbane being the case, uh, and I should note that I've lived longer in Brisbane than any other place since I left my parents' home, as okay. it's turned out. So it's very much a home. But uh, wherever they accept you in is your home. Mm-hmm. And you should engage in that community in the same spirit you would as if you'd lived there all your life mm-hmm. and intended to live there all your life. So we've, we've, this isn't the first place that, it, that we've been that way, but mm-hmm. that is the philosophy we bring. Right. And why specifically Queensland Symphony versus any other range of not-for-profits you could be involved with? Well, um, no grand vision, right? Um, but um, Australia Pacific LNG actually has a relationship yep. with the symphony orchestra, and not something that I started. But because of that, mm-hmm. I got to know them and their board members and management, and they got to know me, and they invited me on. Uh, mm-hmm. I do like the the orchestra. Yeah, uh, I'm a little bit of a cretin. I don't. <laughs> I, I, I can't talk. Uh, well about specific composers etc but I do love the music and fascinated by what they do um, and love to dress up in a tuxedo from time to time yeah well that uh, you know what's one of the things the symphony for those listening out there is becoming much less formal I yeah. mean you see a, a lot of folks showing up just in smart casual etc mm-hmm. 
Uh, I would say it's more about the enjoyment and however you go is good. But mm -hmm. um, yeah, it's, it's been a great organization and one that uh, Queensland should be very proud of, and mm -hmm. they are, but it, it, I know enough to know that, uh, been around the world enough to know that it's well above the quality level that you would expect mm -hmm. uh, in a location like this. It, it actually is recognized around the world as, mm -hmm. as one of the better orchestras. Well, as you know, I've had the uh, CEO of the uh, Queensland Symphony Orchestra on the podcast, and you know, a period of tremendous change and renewal there. New uh, artistic director or musical director, new CEO, um, and uh, very exciting programs uh, mm. coming out. I think it's, um, uh, it's tremendous for little old Queensland to be able to have something of such high quality, literally in our backyard. And, uh, and what's the relationship with Ipswich? Well, so Ipswich is a different thing. Uh, a, a gentleman named Martin Albrecht uh, uh, encouraged me to become involved a few years ago. Right. And it's an area where we've been working to create um, an in engineering construction precinct, but mm -hmm. it's really related to how do we build skills, how do we attract more young people into the engineering construction profession, and ultimately how do we... Uh, improve mm -hmm. our ability to do projects, lower costs, lower these blowouts that you read in the paper all mm -hmm. the time. Uh, not as much about my industry as it is about the wider industry. Uh, if you think about the amount of money that governments spend on infrastructure and how much gets lost by projects that mm -hmm. get away, uh, trying to improve upon that. And, and so we've got three elements of that. Um, one, we've got what's a constructionarium, which mm -hmm. has done its first project and is a moving forward. A constructionarium. Yes. What does that mean? So a constructionarium is is uh, modeled after a, a group in the UK that does this, but it's where um, a group of folks. They might be graduating engineering students. They might mm -hmm. be folks uh, who are new frontline leadership in the field, whatever. Come together and spend five days uh, building a large scale structure of right. something, and it's okay. usually of an iconic structure or building, uh, you know, like the building they call the Easter Egg in London. Right. And you build it and it might be uh, 10 meters tall and, okay, and four right. or five wide or what have you. Um, and so they get some practical feel of what right. it takes to, to build a physical thing because right. they build it straight out of the ground, pour concrete, everything. Um, but also how do you lead and work as a group okay. to, to plan right. and execute and what happens if it doesn't quite go to plan on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday and how do you recover um, and so that's one piece of it right. another piece is uh, an engineering construction innovation hub which mm -hmm. is working on bridging and commercializing <clears throat> uh, new technologies ideas mm -hmm. materials processes that uh, aren't uh, taking root in the construction engineering industry it you know it innovates but when you think about engineering construction we still build buildings sort of the way the romans did mm. 2000 years ago mm -hmm. and so how do we quantum leap that how, yeah. do, how do we go beyond just using ipads that help me process information faster but in the same way yeah to something new and better i think that's a very real um concern because particularly with the cost of labor being uh, so high now i went to a presentation on the future of work and they had the uh Managing Director of um, the Master Builders Association, who showed a stop time construction of a, I think about a 30 story building in China, mm. that literally the entire building was built in about 17 days. And uh, as you say, there's all sorts of opportunities to, to do that, do, um, to have significant technological shifts in the way construction happens. Well, absolutely. And, and for Australia to be competitive, uh, often here, People get out and say you got to lower wages. I, one, I don't think 
that's uh, the right way to go. And two, mm-hmm. I'm not sure it's very possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Most of us don't want our wages lowered. But what we do need to do is take uh, dead time and inefficient time out. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of room to do that. Mm-hmm. And um, through the work with Ipswich, have you had much to do with Paul Pasali? I have. Yeah. Uh, he's, he's a sponsor of what we're doing as right. well. Um, so the last leg of what we're doing is we hope to have a National Engineering Construction Museum. Okay. And, and all of this hopefully on the old uh, Queensland Rail Yard iconic site right. there along with the Transport Museum and, okay. a, and an Energy Museum that they're planning. So. Mm-hmm. I've had Paul on the podcast as well and uh, he, for his age, has got the energy of an 18-year-old. He's quite an amazing man. Yeah, he's, he is really good and, and uh, sort of a an old-fashioned community leader. That's but, right. Uh, but he's been very good with us and working with us to champion this as well. Yeah, if people haven't listened to that interview, I, I highly encourage it. Uh, started as a small business owner, restaurant uh, owner, and uh, now one of recognised one of the top mayors in the world. So, uh, and, uh, so six years in Brisbane. Where's next? So next for us, um, probably not too distant future, is, is actually um, going to retire okay. uh, from... From ConocoPhillips, everybody says, you, you know, you're too young to retire. Well, I don't intend to retire from life, but I intend right. to retire from uh, from this role. Uh, it's been 17 years since I lived in the U.S., okay. so uh, we're going to move back. We have a house uh, on a lake outside of Austin, Texas, right. back where it all started. And yeah. so uh, intend to move back there and get settled in and then uh, see what we do from there. Eat some good barbecue. Oh, there's plenty of that. Right. But probably shouldn't eat too much or it might shorten that later <laughs> yeah. on. And uh, Austin, Texas is a place that I'd love to go because the music scene there is, uh, you know, one of the best in the world, isn't it? Yeah, it's, uh, it's a brilliant city. And mm-hmm. um, it's, um, you know, it doesn't have what uh, Brisbane has in terms of um, a nearby beautiful coastline. Right. Uh, but it has a lot of the other aspects yeah. of Brisbane. It has a city, a river down through the middle of the city. Right. Uh, it, People sort of live as much outdoors and indoors, very mm-hmm. outdoor-oriented. Yeah. And a great music scene, high-tech scene. It's a high-tech center yeah. as well. So, yeah. Oh, that's excellent. So before we finish, my final question, before I let you get on with your day, we've talked a lot about work and, you know, your career and so on, but what are the sort of things you like to do when you're not working to uh, keep you uh, uh, happy and enthused with life? Oh, there's... You know, I, I think there's no shortage of things to do. But my wife and I are both avid golfers. Okay. Uh, members of Brisbane Golf Club here. And so uh, uh, she's playing this morning. Right. Uh, while I'm still working. Mm-hmm. But we do love that. Um, I love to sail. We've been right. lucky to, to uh, spend a few sailing trips into wet Sundays. And yeah. I look forward to having time to do a bit more of that. Uh, and then not surprising probably uh, uh, to most folks... Uh, we like to travel as well, and then and we've got friends all around the world, so we look forward to doing that. And, and then, of course, orchestra and theater and all the great things like that. And your son must be a young adult now. He's 30. Right. So what is he uh, up to? So he and his wife uh, live in Edmond, Oklahoma. Okay. So uh, after he grew up all around the world, he went back and married a small-town Oklahoma girl, and they've stayed there. Uh, and they have a new daughter that's uh, about four months old uh-huh. uh, back there. So I imagine that's part of the attraction of getting back there is to be a good grandparent. Yeah, it is, it is a, a part of the attraction is to see the grandchildren more than once a year, sure. <laughs> twice a year. Uh, but I have to say he's been actually after me for two or three years to, to come home or come right. back closer because ever since he's moved away from home uh, for the last 10 years, uh, we've been overseas. So. Right. Well, Paige, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day. Uh, It's been an excellent conversation, and uh, have a fantastic afternoon. All right. Thanks, Richard.
Thanks again for joining us today on the Arate podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Paige. I look forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic week.